will, please turn with me to 1 Samuel 19, where we'll be this morning to continue our uh, study in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 19. We will again be looking at Saul's attempts to kill David and how he's pretty useless at that, at killing David, that is. And so we'll uh, continue to look at this idea even as it reflects our own lives in many ways. And so before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Our Father and our Lord, we come to your word this morning um, noting our complete helplessness before it, oftentimes even our own wisdom at its greatest falls very short. And so, Lord, we are in need of your help with the text your wisdom, of your mercy, your grace to lead us through it. Well, Lord, we pray that you would convict us of the sin that would seek to make us out to be the hero of this text, to make us out to be the one who deserves praise. You alone, O oh Lord, deserve praise. And so, Lord, we pray for your work in our hearts and our minds as we open your word. Guide us through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I've been reading through this book, particularly these last few chapters with Saul trying to kill David, it reminds me a lot of Saturday morning cartoons when I was a kid. Just bear with me. No, that's kind of strange. You know, Saturday morning cartoons are things a thing of the past because uh, now you just have whole cartoon channels, so it kind of spoils it. You know, you don't have you don't get to wait for Saturday anymore. You can just go turn them on any time now. But I still remember Saturday morning cartoons very vividly, and I got into several of them. I still watch some of them. Like I bought the whole seasons of some of them just because I couldn't stand to be away from them for too long. But anyway, one common theme. Uh, from the cartoons in those days were these very clear lines between the good guys and the bad guys. The bad guys were always so horrible at being bad guys, and the good guys could do no wrong. And so there was these very clear lines, and even like you would go to the good guys and everything would be really light and bright and nice and the dark, they lived in like, Dirty places and rocky crags and all wore dirty clothes. You know, it was just kind of this thing. And the way that it typically played out each episode was the bad guys would come up with some sort of plan to foil the good guys. And the bad guys, it would usually end up, they would have pile over their face at the end of the show, sometimes literally. Uh, but meaning that their plans would backfire on them and their own plans would be their undoing. They would like... It'd be something silly, and the good guys would laugh at the end, and there'd be some sort of moral, and then everyone would go home. And the this would be a source of comedy for the show. This is how the show kind of uh, kind of was driven. And then next week, it was like nothing ever happened, and the bad guys were given an equal chance again, and the good guys were afraid again. And you know, it was kind of the way that it went. Well, of course, real life doesn't work out that way. All the time. Sometimes it does. And I think we're going to see that in this passage today. Saul is kind of like one of those cartoon villains. He's basically been told that he will never win at this point. He has been 
give, or it's the thing that he holds most dear, the kingdom, has been taken away from him. Now he wants nothing more than to thwart the plans of the good guy who David has become in our story as of late. But ultimately, who is the good guy that he wants to thwart? His creator, his God. So last week, Saul attempted to kill David. David won in the end. Saul had pie on his face. And so this week, it's going to be much the same, except we're going to see Saul going from one of being openly mocking the Lord and his anointed one to one that has become personally the laughing stock of the story. And so I think that this is a common refrain. Also, sadly... In the church, we, where we see Christians really fall sometimes and become an embarrassment even. We definitely see this among unbelievers, but we see this in regular intervals among believers as well. And so how do we combat this? How do we combat this, this idea of, of really falling and really failing miserably? And again, with a fear of the Lord comes wisdom. I think we're going to see wisdom from David and Jonathan here. Perhaps it's a silly, sta- a silly thing to stand in derision against the Lord and his people. And so we're going to consider this from three main ideas. Jonathan, a seeker of justice. Saul, a seeker of his own justice. And then Saul, the Lord's justice delivered to him. And so with that, I'll read the text. First Samuel 19, you may remain seated as I read. This text, it's, a, it's another lengthy one. And so, 1 Samuel 19, this is the word of the Lord. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said of him, Let not the king sin against his servant servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, And he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul And he was in the presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. 
So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it in the bed and put in a pillow, or put a pillow of goat's hair on its head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him to me, or bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He has said to me, Let me me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to to Samuel at Ramah and told him that Saul what Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naoth. And it was told, and it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. And then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, this, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Siku. And he said, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth of Ramah. And he went there to Naoth of Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he, as he went, and, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth at Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Amen. This is God's word. And so a good quick review from what we talked about last week. Last week we looked at Samuel 18 and we had songs being sung about the conquests of Saul and David. And you guys remember the song, Saul killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And as you can imagine, Saul was bothered by this. It caused him to do crazy things like throw a spear at his court musician slash superhero giant slayer named David. Meanwhile, what was David doing this whole time? He was destroying the Philistine armies. He even marries Saul's daughter, who is in love with him. It's a great story so far in that the good guy wins, the bad guy loses. We get that whole kind of motif going forward, and we're going to see that similar pattern in today's text. One issue in the text that comes up from time to time as we read scripture, and I thought it important to just note, to kind of pull out by itself, even though it really has a lot to do with what we're talking about today, is this idea that lying, of lying and, and that lying being the right thing. Michael, the wife of David, lies in order to save him. Was it the right thing to do? And this has already happened in our redemptive story. If you go back to Exodus, you see this happening with Rahab, the spy. She lies so that the spies can be saved in Jericho. It's going to happen again throughout Scripture. It's not actually uncommon, really, to see this thing of lying in order to save someone. And so how should we view it? kind of a hard thing because in order to take a stance you kind of have to pull up stakes 
somewhere else. Well, it's okay to lie in this sense. Okay, then now when is it not okay to lie? And you kind of have to do this balancing act. You know, and then I had to ask myself as I went through this, Michael was saving her husband. Uh, would I lie to save my own family? Well, I think I'd probably do a whole lot worse to save my own family. Does that make it right? I don't know. I think it's good to leave it at this, and I've considered this. In, this, in each situation, we had to consider the context. What's at stake here? For Michael saving David, it is delivering him from her crazy father who was about to kill him. She is preventing him from this great immorality of murder. The same with Rahab and the spies, and the same thing that we're going to see with Jonathan and David. And so I'd say when it comes to protecting someone from this type of immorality, especially something like death and defilement, Lying might always be the right thing, so, but don't quote me on that. That's what I've got. We're going to look at that again as we go through the passage, and I think it'll come a little bit more clear. And so first, I want to look at Jonathan, a seeker of justice. So from the very first verse, verse 1, we get to the heart of Saul's plan. Verse 1, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. Why is that? Well, look at verse or chapter 18, verse 30. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, as, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. More than anything, Saul hates that David's name has been highly esteemed esteemed. He hates it. He's eaten up with jealousy. He can't stand to see David do well, even though that it means the people of Israel are doing well, that he's doing well. Saul wasn't a king for the people. He's never been a king to the, for the people. So this really should not surprise us. But what about Jonathan? He hears of this injustice, and so then he goes and warns David which interestingly enough is kind of going against his father. So again, we have this weird balance of what's going on and what's right. He not only warns David, but he seeks to bring justice in the situation. He goes to give David what he deserves. And what does David deserve in this situation? He deserves a pardon from the king. Even though he's done nothing wrong, he deserves for the king to give him Life. So look at verses 4 and 5. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, meaning he, he risked his life, and he struck down the Philistine, talking about Goliath. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And so Saul, for some reason, has this moment of clarity. Some might even say this was a rather kingly thing of him to do. And in verse 6 he says, he swears, it says, As the Lord lives... 
he shall not be put to death. And then we kind of get there in verse 7, this idea that maybe everything's back to normal. David is with Saul and he's in his presence just as before. Maybe everything is going to be right with the world. You know, Of course, we know that we shouldn't really believe Saul at this point. He's given us no reason to. We see very quickly that he can't be trusted. David probably knows this too. But I think that this gives legs to some of the ideas that we just talked about with the whole lying and, and doing wrong. You know, think about what just happened. Technically, Jonathan defiled his father in warning David. And he'll do so again in this story as we continue to read throughout the rest of the book. Was he wrong? Does Jonathan break the fifth commandment here by not honoring his father's wishes, the king of Israel? I don't think so. In the same way that I don't think Michael's lying was wrong. Why? Because justice and mercy were delivered. Mercy because the king's wishes for murder weren't delivered, and justice because an innocent man, or at least as this story is concerned, an innocent man wasn't wrongfully executed. And it makes me think of another passage that we all should be familiar with. Turn with me to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. It's after Jonah. Micah chapter 6. Very uh, notable verse, one that you've heard before. So we'll read verses 6 through 8 here. And this really brings to light, I think, what Jonathan's doing here. Micah chapter 6, starting at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens tens of thousands rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So what does the Lord require? Does he require all those things like our firstborn and firstfruits and calves? No. He requires us to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. Well, we're no good at those things. So who did that for us? Jesus. Who did that for Jonathan and David? Jesus. And we stand upon his justice and kindness and humility. But does that mean that we're no longer called to do those things? No. There are many, many situations surrounding us where we have the opportunity to do justice to speak justice, just like Jonathan did here. Consider the rights of the unborn. It's a great example of this. And we see these we see champions of the unborn in our own faith. Children in schools, where we, we go to school and we see this kind of thing all the time, where they need basic things like food and clothes for no fault of their own. It's not a thirteen year old kid's fault that he didn't eat supper the night before. That's an injustice. 
It's not their fault that they can't see. They need eyeglasses or they need medicine. Just basic things that we take for granted. These are great pursuits for believers. That is doing justice. Widows and orphans. How many times are we instructed in Scripture to care for them? That is doing justice. Men and women who struggle, who are down. Alcoholism, drug abuse. Think of just the myriad of things that are going on in our society because of sin. We have many, many opportunities in this life to do justice, to walk humbly with our God, to love mercy. It's always good for us to seek them out. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. They're all around you. And so next, we see Saul, a seeker of his own justice. So we're back to the story. Everything seems fine, right? Verse 8, and there was war again. And what does war mean? Well, David's going to go kill everybody, and Saul's going to be jealous. And that's exactly what happens. Saul is still the king. David is still playing his harp. And evil spirits from the Lord are still coming on to Saul. And Saul, unfortunately, still listens to harp music with his spear in hand. A weird situation. So we get this same episode. Saul attempts to pin David to the wall. David dodges again. This time David flees to his home. And Saul sends messengers after him. I love how we're just told these are messengers as if they have something to tell David. They want to kill David. That's the point. And now, this is where David pins the psalm that Todd read for us this morning in Psalm 59. Turn with me to Psalm 59. One of the things the Psalter gives us is, especially David's psalms, is we kind of get this account of his life going throughout all the different things that are going on, and they're definitely not sequential. Uh, So Psalm 59, we see the uh, preface there, and it says, Of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So here's Saul, or here's David, reading this, or writing this psalm, while Saul's men are outside waiting for him to wake up. And so what does he say? Look at verse 1 through 3. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. Save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine. O Lord, what has David done? Nothing. What is he getting? The threat of death. From these men that he probably could have just walked outside and killed, frankly. But he's afraid. Why? Because he's a mere man. He's not a superhero, even though it seems that way. He's somehow able to escape. His wife tricks the other people by putting an idol in the bed, which is a whole other issue for putting the household idol in the bed. Uh, so quickly, apparently, It wasn't uncommon for folks to keep these sorts of idols in their houses uh, for for good luck. 
over and over. That's what I read in the commentaries. Uh, obviously, still a bad thing, not condoned. Uh, but in this case, it worked to save David. Again, uh, that's a hard one. Chew on that for a little while. But let me encourage you to, uh, again, keep your focus on the act of redemption that's going on here, even though that's something else to deal with in Scripture. Scripture loves to throw these things at us and then not comment on them. Um, so Saul sends his people after David and finally goes after him himself. And everything keeps going wrong for Saul. Why? Because he hates David. And even in the face of utter defeat, his hate so consumes him that it becomes his downfall. And so what do we do with this, brothers and sisters in Christ? We need to take heed that this doesn't happen to us. We talked a little bit about this last week. And I think it's good to mention it again. We should be for the things that God is for and against the things that he's against. And that should be easy for us. However, because of our proclivities towards jealousy, like Saul here, we sometimes turn that on its head in order to build ourselves up. And so instead of justice, we easily change over to injustice and corruption in order to gain something for ourselves. And I think it's easy to see this with with possessions or maybe intangible things uh, like money or power. We so desire possessions and prestige that will throw people under the bus just to get one inch ahead or gain one dollar. I think it's easy to see that, but it becomes harder when it comes to the way that we perceive things that are more neutral. And we have to be careful with these things because we sometimes assign moral value to them. I think we see this easily with the political and social issues of the day. Not the very easy moral ones, but some of the things that are less or more gray, I guess. But in the church, I think this rears its head with silly things like carpet color and music selection and whether or not the communion table is covered with a white sheet or not. That's one argument that I've heard in the church, sadly. It's a non-moral situation. Why do we have to make moral issues of those things? We could go on and on and on. You know what I'm talking about here. Why do we do that? So that I can somehow seem better than you because I think the white sheet is right. And look, I have a white sheet. Actually, don't. So that's the point. We, We try to make our own morality the standard, and it's not. We need to be careful that we don't come down the opposite side of the Lord on these types of issues or come down on issues that Scripture does not come down on. Because when we do, we'll often end up just like Saul does in this story. Every time. And so Saul, third point, the Lord's justice delivered to him. And so let's look at that. Saul realizes that his daughter has now betrayed him, and he sends folks out to send David. This time, we have Samuel entering the picture again, the prophet of the Lord, and he has other prophets there with him. Each time these men are sent to get David, they end up prophesying with Samuel. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon them, and they prophesy. What does this mean? Well, simply, I think it's a way of the Lord turning the situation 
on its head. Who's in control, Saul or God? It's easy. God. He makes these men, these enemies, prophesy in his name. Three times they are completely disarmed. They end up speaking the words of the Lord instead of delivering murder, which is what they were planning to do, showing us that the Lord is complete, in complete control even of his enemies. And so next, Saul, of course, thinking, well, if you've got to do something, you might as well do it yourself. He goes to see what's up. And when Saul gets there, he gets this exact same treatment in a much more vivid fashion. What do we hear about Saul? Look at verse 23. And he went there to Naoth of Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came of Naoth of Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. It's kind of symbolic of what's going on in Saul's life, right? He's already been stripped of his kingdom and any ounce of dignity and morality that he had, and now he's literally stripped of his clothing, all of his pride, anything that he had left. And now all day and all night, he is before Samuel prophesying in the nude. I think we're reminded of this saying here at the end of this that has kind of become a common colloquialism among the Hebrew people. There, thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. This isn't the first time we've seen this. Remember the last time we saw this, this same exact phrase, therefore it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Last time we saw this, he was coming into his kingdom. It was said as a positive thing about him. Remember, because he was doing what Samuel said he would do, and he went to the prophets, and he was prophesying, and the people could not believe that Saul the farmer was prophesying. Wow, is Saul even also among the prophets? But now we're given this as a humiliation. This saying is not a good thing. It's humiliating for Saul, the king of Israel, to be there with no clothes on, prophesying. We are shown that even bad kings who think they are in charge are at the Lord's every whim. And they're stripped bare for the world to see their humiliation on display. Turn with me again to Psalm 59. As I read and studied this psalm, I noticed verses 8 through 10. And I want you to see the Lord's response to this. And hopefully it tickles your ears. Hopefully you recognize this passage. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look on triumph over my enemies. He laughs at them. He holds them in derision. Though they plot against the Lord, he mocks them. What's the connection here? This one's about David. There's another place that we can read these words in Psalm 2. 
Turn with me there. This psalm is about our Lord Jesus. And I'll read the whole psalm, Psalm 2. And put this where we're talking about with Saul, but also consider this in our own context. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This psalm is about David, for sure. David wrote this psalm. But more importantly, it's about David's son and David's Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Why does the, why does the world plot against him? Better yet, why do we? Why do we continue in our sin? Why do we continue to plot against his will in Christ? Of course, we are safe from the wrath of God. But that doesn't mean that we aren't immune to acting like the world does or like Saul does. What do we get in return? Well, the Lord holds us in derision. Literally, it's mocking. He laughs. Look at Saul's situation. Isn't the Lord doing just that with him? Thankfully, because of Jesus and what he's done for us, we stand with him. So let us remember that as we go on our way. And so in conclusion, church, let us do justice and love mercy and walk in humility, lest we receive justice and be humiliated. Let us hold one another up to this task. We stand with the Father. We stand with the Father because of the work of the Son. So let us hold to this warning here in Psalm 2. Kiss the Son. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Brothers and sisters, take refuge in our Lord Jesus. Let's go to Him and pray. Our Lord, as we come to you this morning, hopefully we are able to recognize that we are just like Saul many times. We stand in mockery of your plans, of your will, of your law. We have our own ideas about what we think is right, and we literally think you are wrong. We are thankful for our Lord Jesus 
Because of him, you don't strike us down. And so we are thankful for his forgiveness. And so, Lord, now help us to live as we ought. Help us to avoid these situations like Saul is in. Help us to do justice, to to love mercy, to walk in humility, that we might go with you, that we might be with you, that we might learn from you. We are thankful for our Lord Jesus who did that for us, that we stand with you even today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.